welcome to the Anti-Architect Podcast. I am your host, Christian Giordano. As president and owner of the design firm Mancini Duffy, I am driven by a quest for learning and radically changing the industry. With this podcast, I'm hoping to improve the industry that I'm so passionate about by taking a critical look at how architects work through a variety of voices and shared experiences. Hello, Anti-Architect Podcast listeners. I'm excited to have Peter and Tom Gluck as my guests here via Zoom on the Anti-Architect Podcast. Peter is the founder of Gluck Plus, a renowned architect-led design-build studio in New York City. Tom is Peter's eldest son, and he is a partner at the firm. Gluck Plus specializes in architectural services, development, architect-led design-build, and are known for their diverse work worldwide. Their projects range from houses to religious buildings, community centers, university buildings, historic restorations, and the list goes on and on. Peter holds a Bachelor of Arts from Yale University and a Master of Architecture from the Yale School of Architecture. He has designed and built a series of houses from New York to Newfoundland, winning many, many awards. In addition, he has taught at Columbia and the Yale School of Architecture where Peter is an outspoken critic of the AIA and many other aspects of our profession, which I'm excited to talk about. Tom holds a Bachelor of Arts with a concentration in Visual and Environmental Studies from Harvard College and a Master's of Architecture from Yale University. Tom joined the firm as an associate principal back in 2005, but before Gluck Plus, Tom worked at Herzog and Demuron as the site project manager for the design and construction of the Walker Arts Center in Minneapolis. So thank you guys so much for your time and for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having us. Yeah. And so a few topics that I definitely want to get into, um, and I'll kind of just throw a little outline here. Definitely want to talk about design build. I want to talk about how architects get paid in our fee structure. I'd uh, love to talk about the relationship on the father-son uh, practice, um, technology, and then just the profession in general. So um, with that, um, Peter, you and I actually share a common professor. I was listening to a podcast that you had done, and you spoke about Vincent Scully. And um, I actually also had Vincent Scully. So towards the end of, of Scully's career, when I was in architecture school at the University of Miami, I guess there was some some issue where he was no longer allowed to be a professor at uh, Yale uh, due to his age. And so Miami picked him up and he uh, was a professor there. So I got to enjoy yeah, that. I think, I think he was 150 at the time. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And he was still teaching when I was at Yale. So Okay. Uh, yeah, yep. so it's, uh, oh, so you also had him as well. I did. Oh, wow. That's great. I remember the same slide, the same slides, the same, but the a completely different uh, perspective. <laughs> yep. Same slides. So, so he, he went from, from a, a, a kind of a heroic modernist to a contextualist and used the same slides to prove both. <laughs> 30 years apart. Or 40. It's absolutely correct. I don't think I appreciated it back in the day, kind of the, the magnitude of having a, a Scully there. And I remember that it, they actually, it was one of the few classes they put in the arena in, in Miami in like one of the theater arenas, you know, that held, you know, a couple thousand people and everyone from around the community came and sat in, you know, took this class. And I remember us as the architecture students yep. kind of shoved in the corner and we had a teaching assistant that could have cared less about being there. Um, but yeah, pretty, pretty interesting. Did they, did they have lions and, and gladiators too? <laughs> <laughs> pretty much. <laughs> Um, so I, there's a question for both of you and you can kind of pick and, and, and choose who answers it. But if you had to pick one thing, uh, what annoys you about architects? Um, Tom, why don't you go first? Um, I'd say that they, they think that the, their work really is relegated to the, the office and the computer. It used to be the drafting table, but now the computer. Okay. Um, that's sort of fundamental the way we practice. And I think, I think fundamental to, to, to creating good architecture. And Peter. 
Well, I, you know, to be um, facetious, which I usually am, um, it's probably the glasses they wear, which is which is a sign that somehow they're different or that that they're, I don't know, it's it's that they need a signature, that they need to, they need to be, um, since they think of themselves as somehow special, um, they need to to uh, tell the world about that. I love it. That is a that is a great answer. It's uh, I always joke with some of my other friends that are not architects that I can pick an architect out, um, you know, from a mile away. Uh, and and a lot of it's the glasses. A lot of it's sort of the way that they carry themselves. And uh, that that's really funny. So, what about? Um, let's just talk quickly about the educational system for architects. Um, you know what what would you guys change sort of now looking back at the education system or looking at um, how you're, you know, as you bring in new hires into your office, what, what about the education system works for architects and does not work? I think I would change the, um, the, the teachers. I, I, I think one of the problems is that the school, the schools have generations of teachers who are teaching how to become teachers rather than teaching about architecture because there, there, there needs to be more um, exposure from outside the, the academy. It's, 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 it's not so much the, the label, it's, it's where, the, where the, those labels are practiced and how they're practiced. Mm-hmm. And the, the school gets to be a, a a, a kind of special place with its own language and its own a very um, self-conscious and, and protective environment, as opposed to being open and, and looking at the, at the real uh, aspects of the things they're talking about. Yeah. So I, let, I might, go ahead. I, I might just, it, I think it's a, a, another way of, I think, expressing a, it's the same sentiment, which is that it's like, well, what what is school really for? You know, theoretically, there are a couple of different kinds of schools, right? Because you have a five-year bachelor's of architecture, which is very different than, say, a, a master's. Um, but if school is a place where you practice maybe developing your own sense of design, um, that's something I think the schools do, can do well. Uh, I think and, and ostensibly, you know, there is as part of our licensing, there's three years of experience you have to get before you can sit for a license. Um, but the, pra- the, the practice of architecture is not really taught in school. And, um, and I think that although there's a structure for how to pick that up, which is through work, which I think is appropriate, um, I still think there's a sense that you graduate with a master's or a bachelor of architecture and somehow you are ready to practice and and it's it's you it, you really need a lot actually much more than even three years experience in the workplace to really start to to try to understand all the various complexities of, of the profession yeah i would agree i think that the um some of the work study programs uh, like we've had uh, people from waterloo university in um um in Canada, we've had people from uh, Kansas, which is also a work co-op program, and obviously Cincinnati as well. I think that's probably the most, you know, prestigious one. Let's call it. Um, you know, those students. I think that's a very valuable lesson of integrating in the practice of or the the architecture practice into when you're learning. And there's that. And, and listen, I I look back at school, and I I have a graduate degree as well, and um, you know that time was fun in a sense to kind of practice these these designs and really understand and, and find a sensibility. But the reality of ultimately getting and going to work and then the route that I took more on the corporate firms um, is very, very different from from the architecture from the architecture practice. Right. We've had a, a steady stream of Waterloo interns who we've had both as interns and and are actually very keen to hire them back when they finally do graduate because yeah. it is a a more complete package. Um, and uh, Austin also, uh, UT Austin also has a program like yep, that. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. What What is your opinion, I'm curious, on on corporate architecture firms? 
Um, you know, is that selling out? Is there, you know, what is your, you know, what do you think of like a Gensler or even my practice, Mancini Duffy, or um, some of the the bigger, more corporate firms, as opposed to the route that you and your father, you know, have taken really the sort of the the private practice, um, what I would call more, um, more design oriented in a sense. Take that. Uh, probably you shouldn't ask me. No, I think you should. <laughs> I think it'd be more interesting coming from them. Definitely. <laughs> I think um, Gensler is a, a perfect example of um, kind of packaging architecture and 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 um, thinking of architecture as a, a kind of a, a, a PR product. They develop products, not not ideas or not space, or and they're incredibly good at it, um, and 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 fast. And so, if you're a developer and you want uh, a quick image um, that that looks professional, you you get it. It's, it, from my opinion, it's very thin. It, it's um, it's pasted on the facade of of buildings or interiors. Uh, it's like a, it's like a giant machine. So I, 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 I think probably the, the, the positive aspect is that the buildings they do are probably in the spaces that they make are probably better than people who do the same thing without the expertise that they do. So they're good at what they do. Mm-hmm. I just don't particularly like what they do. Yeah, I mean, I wish that the projects that they had were done by architects who were, you know, more committed to the principles and 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 the um, and the artistic endeavors involved in, in in true architecture. I think one of the questions is why you know why why is there this thing called corporate architecture? Why are they these larger firms and 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 what is what is it born out of? Um, and I think we, and I'm sure you know, and everyone who's listening who's an architect knows. Some of it is in response to the kind of economic realities of the profession, um, where it's it's very hard to spend as much time as I think probably any architect would like to spend on any one project um, in in the fee structures that that we as as a profession are able to command within the greater market, and and that's 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 real, and that's a problem. A hundred percent. You know, I, I, I think that I, I would characterize that kind of architecture as, as almost like set design. If you want to find talent and you want to find in, in, incredible abilities for, for making things. And um, if you look at the, the, the world of set designers in film, it's amazing, just amazing what those guys do. Sure, and I think that Gensler is in, in a way like that, um, but they are, they're also able to make it not out of out of cardboard, but but uh, you know they're also able to make buildings that that work. I think to some degree, mm-hmm. um, and and to to that end, that they're they're good because there's certainly a lot of architects and a lot of buildings that simply don't work. Absolutely. And, and that's, and, that's not a, that's, that's no small thing. And, and going back to the fee structure, that is something that I wanted to talk about. You know, I, I look at, you know, let's say I were to do a typical interiors job and the, the, the price per square foot that I would charge is very market driven, right? It's a, whatever, let's call it, um, uh, $4 and 50 cents a square foot for a, you know, a, a good, nice corporate interior job. Um, that's a price that I'd have to quote today. That's also a price that I was quoting 10 years ago, if not even 15 years ago. And so getting, getting that, that, that structure of, of this is how much it's going to cost because the market will bear X amount. 
is then obviously very difficult to to balance on the human capital and the human resource side, right? Is if I'm not getting any more money, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's impossible. It's impossible. It's not hard. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I totally agree. And getting clients to you know, pay for the value that they're getting versus pay for the quantity that they're getting is a very, very difficult proposition, especially in a corporate firm, which kind of goes back to that Gensler model that they are very good at, right? Churning out a certain amount of quality of design for X amount of dollars and keeping, you know, thousands. But, but what, of- are they, what are they actually, what are they actually turning out? They're, they're, they're more and more, they're turning out a, a cartoon of something that will be built and by somebody else and all of the nuts and bolts and the difficulties that normally that that normally are used to be the, the role of the architect have been usurped by good contractors mm-hmm. who understand um, how to how to make facades and make you know, they understand how to make these things whereas the Gensler's of the world don't do that they stop at a certain point um, and they know when to stop so what's happened in order for them to continue earning a profit they have to do they can't deal with the dollars per square foot they get they do the only way they can manage the money is by doing less and less mm-hmm. for that square for that square foot price so if you can really seriously get involved in in uh, an ex- exterior facade system and mechanical systems and all of the kind of things that, that make a really good building uh, you would have to charge much more the, the world has found it more efficient to allow the, 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 the people in the, in the build world to do that rather than the architects. Yeah. And the reason for that is not that, that the build world is smarter than architects, quite the contrary. Um, what is the reason? The reason is that architects don't do it. It's, it's, it's somehow been dirty. And not only has it been seen to be dirty, to have, you know, to be on site. Um, it's just that they, they, they haven't gone to the site. They've, they've absented themselves from the actual production of the, of the thing that they've designed. Yeah. So the, the ultimate, the ultimate, and we're going there quickly. The ultimate result is that, that architects make cartoons and other people actually make buildings. And I, I think that one of the things that as, because we, I think this is something that's known about the profession and it's not new, right? So this mm-hmm. is something that's been happening for not years, but decades and generations of architects and that whole cycle of, you know, even one of the first questions you asked about architectural education. So as time goes on, as architects have to withdraw to, to do less in order to fit within the fee structure and then be able, they're capable of doing less and it's not that those things aren't figured out. They are. You, you, someone has to figure out how something is built and whether that's done through a vendor and a system, you know, a package system that you can easily specify, mm-hmm. which architects rely a lot on, um, or through uh, figuring it out kind of the old fashioned way through, you know, the kind of heavy coordination that a lot of the large CMs do on jobs in lieu of the architects or, on t- you know, they have the architects do as much as they can and then they start over and do it themselves. Yep. Um, it's happening. It's just all happening outside of our realm and out of our profession, which then only continues to put pressure on reducing our fees and us doing less. And it's a the profession is in dire situation. Um, and through, and this is through kind of you know a constant recirculating of this of this cycle. Can, can I tell a little story? I have a story that I think is appropriate. Please do for this. Um, I was visiting a well-known architect in Texas, and it just the, the amount of work that he had was staggering. The projects were incredible. They were all over the country. And I went to see his office, and there were about 20 people in the office. That was it. I said, how, how in the heck can you do that? I don't, I don't understand. Um, and he said, well, we have, we've, we've found it difficult, but we found this great um, illustrator. Um, who we, we used to use, you know, to, to show our clients what the buildings were going to be like. But that person has a real sense of what we do. So we're letting him actually take the, take the proposal and, and do the design. And then um, basically the, the rest of it, we sub out to the mechanicals and the structure. 
So the, the person designing the building is is an illustrator. Hmm. And that's re- that's a real story. I mean, that that really I was shocked, but I realized that that at, at its worst, that's pretty much what's happening. Now, the problem is we don't have enough really good illustrators. <laughs> that's part of the problem. <laughs> that is true. So I guess, um, you know, I, I've heard, Peter, I've heard you say that, you know, um, you know, you feel a sense of responsibility that architects need to change the profession, right? And And I feel the same way. And the way that that I've gone about it is really in my firm is about the culture, making a a great place to work, making sure that we use sort of our entrepreneurial and entrepreneurial spirit that we've got um, where people have certain passions and we're really trying to allow them to follow that, whether that's technology or interiors, whatever it might be. And that ultimately pushes the profession for us forward, the design forward, um, but how do you see that responsibility in terms of changing architecture? Well, first of all, I think it's important that that you that you have a culture, um, and that you you have people who want to stay, and that you have um, you, you don't have a constant turnover. I, I have been lecturing over the years in various places, mostly in the Midwest and you know out, outside of New York City. And I say, I say to the young guys, well, who are you working for? And he says, well, I'm working for ABC, but I, you know, two years ago, I was working for ZYM. And, and I'm thinking of looking at, you know, QRY. Um, and it's all just a big mishmash of changing heads. And this person is buying that person. Like the whole thing becomes a commodity. Mm. So if, if, if your life becomes a commodity and you're making a, a commodity, designing one, it's, it's, it's not conducive to drilling down into the real nuts and bolts, not only physical, but, but conceptual as well of, of architecture. The culture is, is, is really, really, really critical. And it has to be, it has to be driven and it has to, it's expensive to maintain because you have to have lots of information within the within the firm. It has to be an educational um, maintain itself as an educational institution because if you keep doing the same thing again and again, um, where, where do you, where do you where do you get? Yeah, and and, and I, I mean, I think it's no secret that our our um, trick or our our solution it's one solution to to the larger problem you've articulated you know uh how you approach it and there are lots and ours is really is is uh, under the broad uh cubic of of um design build but more specifically architect-led design build and so the and we have we have a a very good uh, a very very experienced group of people we're, we're not we're you know about 40 people but we have a lot of experienced people people do stay and and there are people who get into architecture because from from you know from that you know kind of initial how did you get into architecture kind of thing people there's a whole host of them a large percentage who get into architecture because they're really fascinated and like the making of something yeah. and then the design is kind of the front end of that right the conceptualization coming up with the theory um, a, a starting to craft space and form uh, and material, and then all the, the detailing of it and the technical overlay. And, and, and these are, you know, physical environments. These are environments for, that are inhabited. So it's about as complicated a, 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 a making in its broadest term, whether it's culture or painter, um, uh, as I think it gets. And by integrating design and construction in our firm, we find that that learning cycle uh, is extended. There's much, much more to learn, and there's much more for everyone to sink their teeth into. It takes longer because <laughs> mm-hmm. there's so much more to it, and we practice unusually. So it's, it's very, very rarely we get kind of people who come in with the same knowledge base that we need on a day-to-day basis, but they 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 learn it here. And I think once they're exposed to it, um, they really value not just the conceptual making of something, but also its realization all the way through um you know the less glorious aspects of commissioning and uh the the kinds of things that all that that we take on as builders when we're building our work 
Yeah, and so I definitely want to talk about the design build and specifically architect-led design build. And one of the things I always say in in my firm is that, you know, I'm I'm openly critical about us as a profession, right? We know how to draw things, but we don't know how to build things, right? And I, and I I think I learned that firsthand when I, you know, I was kind of thrust into the responsibility of being a senior designer on a very large TV station, beautiful building. And um, I designed everything on that thing. I, I remember I, I designed, you know, every little detail, every reveal, every everything. And when it was under construction, there was a grand staircase that went up. And I remember the contractor saying to me, how am I supposed to install these, you know, limestone panels on the side of the stair? You didn't leave any room whatsoever. And I thought, oh my God, I'm dead. Like my boss is going to be pissed. Everyone's going to kill me. I just cost like thousands and dollars. And I remember the contractor saying to me, you know what? Um, we've actually figured it out for you. Don't worry. You know, we're going to save you here. We're actually going to assemble this, this particular open area backwards, right? We're going to do it through the wall system. And then we're going to hoist the, these pieces of stone in backwards um, and kind of work from inside out. Right. And uh, we've done that. <laughs> yeah. And I remember that, that clicked for me like, oh, yeah, like I, I drew that and I remember drawing it thinking how cool this is going to be. There's two and a half inches between, you know, these two pieces of material and no problem. But no one ever said, hey, how the heck are you going to actually build that? You know, no, no human can fit in there. Um, so, so how did that start design build for, for you guys? And, and you know, I, I also have questions about the legality of it. Um, you know, how is it structured? Is it separate companies? So can you can you spend a little time and and, and talk about that? Yeah, can, can I, I, I want to tell an, another nasty little story first before we get <laughs> sure. into that. Because to, to, I, I realized how, how best to um, answer your question, which is the, the, the question, which is how do I survive as an architect? <laughs> how, because there's the, the, the fees are... The, the work is more and more complex. The fees are lower and lower. What's the implications of that? So an architect makes used to say he'd make a 10% fee. And of that 10% fee, this was all theoretical. This was AIA talking. Of that 10% fee, he would take 10, you know, one, he would take 10% of that as his as his profit. So that was 1% was his profit. Um, he also had to, with that, he had to pay for his insurance out of that and, and all of the, the work. Now, the contractor, he makes, it used to be called 10 and 10. It was 10% for his overhead and 10% for his profit. And the insurance, by the way, is paid for by the job. He doesn't pay the insurance. So, so that sounds like 10% is his profit. That's the contractor. The architect's profit, as we just remembered, if you can remember that long, about three minutes, I have trouble with that. Um, that 1%. So that sounds like the contractor is making 10 times as much as the architect. And that's pretty close to being true. Yeah. <laughs> and that's the truth. Yeah. That's the bottom line. So how do you, how do you make money? It's a nasty question. They don't, you don't talk about that in school. Now let's start talking about design build and let's be both the architect and the contractor. Mm -hmm. That sounds like 11%. Yes, it does. We sometimes say that it's our uh, <laughs> our our construction income can uh, supports our design habit. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. it. Um, and you know, we have a little bit of we have latitude. So you know, strictly on business terms, we could operate our architectural, and we 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 do have two separate entities. The legal division is is kind of very clean, um, uh, but. You know, it, we have a little bit of latitude where if we feel like we're working on a project where the facade is just not quite there or there's something that's not really worked out and we're not satisfied with its um, with its design and and yet we're past our 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 fee for, say, that phase, we ha if we're building it, we have latitude to extend it because we know that um, our our we have profit coming in from construction and we're not, we don't want to just go buy boats and move to, you know, retire in Florida already, early, mm -hmm. right? We're dedicated to the profession. We like crafting space. We like making urban, you know, buildings and, and, and all the rest of it. So from a strict business standpoint, maybe 
you know, in business school, they wouldn't tell you to do this, but as architects, it's tremendously liberating and powerful to have a little bit of latitude to let the design, you know, everyone knows, like sometimes things fall into place really quickly and sometimes they don't. And sure. those projects really shouldn't be any worse. They're just harder sometimes. It's just the nature of the game. And to give yourself a little bit of breathing room, we have the ability to, to take the time that's, that's sometimes required. And, and also you have the ability to pay people to stay, whereas whereas otherwise when, when someone really good gets to a certain point where he comes and says, you know, I need more money because I have children and I'm trying to live like a human being, um, you can say, okay, we'll, we'll pay it. Or you'll, you'll say, I'm sorry, you know, it's time that you moved on. And moving on might often means moving out of the profession. Yeah. So, so are you hiring people with a construction background or is it purely people with an architecture background and then training them on the construction side? So that that's the key to, so let, let's back up a little bit about the way we practice and some of the benefits. The thing, the fund, what, what really drives us is the making of, of architecture. And that's our prime mission. That's what excites us. That's why we wake up in the morning. That's why we wake up in the morning as many days as my father has woken up in the morning, <laughs> why, why I do and why younger people in our office do. Um, and Seems uh, the dinosaurs, actually. <laughs> and, um, and so the uh, allowing the advantage to building, and we'll get to the, the tricky how we do it, but the man, advantage to being the builder is that while we're designing, we have a lot of that knowledge base in on our drafting table, right? It's in all the from the last jobs, the, all the construction, the trying to get those panels in, all those kinds of things, or the kinds of innovations you can do with stone when you spend time in the you know in the with the mason on site, um, or steel or glass or whatever it is. So there's a huge advantage on the upfront on the front design end, and then also with our design hat on, there's a huge advantage on the back end because we're able to make sure that the, the things that matter in our projects get built the way we want them to be because we're the ones building them. The flip side of that is that as builders, there are, we're, we're the ones on the site running the job. So there are a million little questions that never get back to an architect would be inappropriate to get back to an architect, but there are a million little tweaks where if you understand the basic premise and the design ideas behind them, you could do things a couple different ways, all of which would be acceptable, but one might be marginally better than the others. And with a thousand of those little questions, again, you can just kind of slowly creep creep it towards a better overall solution. But on the so job, the, are you the are you the super? Are you the tin knocker? Are you the plumber? Right. How how does all of that work? So, so the so the way it actually works is we are, um, we're the construction manager. We're doing projects primarily with GMPs um, uh, um, fully at risk. So we, uh, we don't self-perform. We don't swing hammers. Um, we don't touch a tool. There, you know, there is a notion of design build. We're really probably grown primarily in the late 60s and 70s where you went up and you kind of didn't do drawings and you kind of figured it out more on a residential scale and you kind of figured it out as you went. Yeah. Right? That's impossible in today's buildings um it was impossible, it was it was impossible, impossible but um, that is what i think of by the way because i remember that being the design and build was basically happening concurrently right and in fact we do more drawing up front than we do when we're working we don't only design build so we will we often there's maybe 20 percent of our work where the architects only mm -hmm. uh but we do more drawing when we're building ourselves because there's we know all the drawings that need to happen um, and they happen by somebody, and it's much better to have them happen by the architect, kind of like what we were saying. Earlier. We spend so much time um, ch checking shop drawings that we're, we're often better off just doing the shop drawings ourselves. Yeah. So that means we're doing two sets of drawings, or or two sets of drawings are always made on bu buildings because the architect will make his so-called construction documents, and then the contractors, if they're at all sophisticated, will throw those away and start and, over and make another. So why? would anybody pay for the architect to do construction documents? And that's what's happening more and more. The architects are, are not doing construction documents, which gets them another reason why they're getting closer and closer to be, being cartoon makers. Right, and less and less fee. If you don't need to do that, that that's oh, the bulk of the fee. Of course. Yeah. Of and course. less knowledge. Mm -hmm. and, and less knowledge to be able to start to turn that around. Yeah. Um, so, so in the end, we are... Everything that you've done on a big project with a CM, we do everything that that CM does. Okay. The key to our 
to, to what we think is successful about the way we practice is that we're all architects and there's continuity. So from a legal standpoint, there's a very clear line uh, and we have two entities, mm -hmm. but in reality, we're the same people. So the same people who are designing, uh, you know, initial sketches, foam block models, all that stuff that happens that every architect's familiar with on the front end of the project, very often they're the same ones who are on site managing the job, um, the PM, if mm -hmm. you will. Uh, and um, we do, there's some, some superintendent work. We're also the superintendents. Uh, and so we, we generally move the entire team um, in when, as soon as there's ability to be on site and it's a, it's a seamless transition. So our kind of the trajectory of a normal job is you might start with a couple people early in concept design and run through it staffs up during CDs. And then we keep staffing up because then we're bidding and buying, which is where there's a huge amount of um, uh, value. And then all the way through uh, the management of the job. And that team then trails all the way out to commissioning. And that's the real proposition is, is buying the job. Yeah. The people who are, who are able to have flexibility in in the purchasing of the of, of the whatever the trade it is that's being bought whereas the contractor when he buys does not have the ability to change he's got the drawings that he's stuck with mm -hmm. that's what he has to buy with and they're a mess because they're done by architects <laughs> absolutely so so when you're so I assume then you've got a tremendous knowledge base on the estimating side and you're able to then understand costs really from the get-go, which I also think is a weakness on the architect side. I even said it last night to a friend at a, a, a dinner is never never trust an architect when they tell you how much something's going to cost to build. Um, because we don't know. I only know what it cost the last time I built it, and who knows if that was even accurate. Let's be honest. So, how do you, how did you get to this point where you were, are confident enough in your estimation and buying a job um, to? And because we don't, we don't do it the way you described it is the way we don't do it. Okay. We we don't we don't base our costs on anything that happened in the past. That's ridiculous. What we do is try to glean with the the sequence the way we sequence our drawings. We, we try to go to the market early in the job so that we can get our estimates based on market, not based on wish fulfillment or some some expert. Mm -hmm. And I think if you think about it, you know, because that I think that it really that is really the key, which is. You know, as architects, we only know um, what the last job costs, but that's true for contractors too. They only know if they're doing in-house estimating, they're basic. Now they may have a bigger pool to, to, to draw from depending on the scale of the contractor, but they're basing it on previous work. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when you're dealing with things like steel and concrete, trying to estimate those things on cubic yardage or tonnage of steel is the, is really, really problematic because configuration and, and logistics and all those things matter the most. Sure. So we'll design a building, we'll create, but we've even changed the normal phasing. We do SD and then we do the CD1, we call it, where we take the base building and do real drawings and actually get them to the, get them out on the market. Because mm -hmm. it's the subcontractors who actually are the ones who price things and know their pricing. And good CMs and good GCs do this too. They don't do it in-house. They do it through a relationship with a whole host of subcontractors. Sure. So they're getting accurate um, pricing. Yeah. They're getting accurate price. And it's yeah. uh, in today's world, it changes every six weeks. Yeah. I mean, you know, right now is it's crazy. Yeah, I'm sure. So you there is no historical data anyone can rely on. The architect the architect will say, well, isn't that a lot of extra work? And how do you get paid for that? Yes, it's a lot of extra work. We get paid for that by it's pre-con. It's everyone. Everyone's used to a pre-con budget. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's, they they normally pay the contractor for that. Yeah. So so we just take that and, and much more accurately than the than the contractor does it because the contractor has no idea what the design is. <laughs> so then with so this it's, it's also simple when you think about it. Why would you have two separate people designing and building a building? Why wouldn't you have the person that that's going to take care of your building be able to both design and build it? It does and sound very so, simple. <laughs> Is that so hard? No, it isn't so hard. It's that we've we've forced it. That's the way it's been for four thousand years. You know, guess what? In those four thousand years, there've been there've been a couple of decent buildings built. 
So how are you then seeking out your clients, right? Because I, if I were to, I'm thinking of a, of a, basically any, almost any of our clients, although I would, there's probably a few, if I approach them with this concept, they would grasp onto it because they are very high, high design, right? They really, they care about every little detail. Uh, But then we have a pool of clients that, you know, it's driven, it's money driven, it's, it's occupancy driven, it's whatever driven that, that it is. It's not the design portion of it. And if I were to propose a structure like this, they'd basically tell me there's no way I could do that and and I need to have X amount of contractors bid and lowest bid wins and that's that, right? How do you guys get your clients to to kind of go along with this journey and how are you seeking out that work? So in the beginning, you know, it takes part of it is building up a body of work where you've done this and building up a client base who can can then be references for future clients. So, but it started the, the office, this part of the office started small, started in single family residential, where it's a single owner, you're not dealing with boards, you're not dealing, generally you're not dealing with major banks. Um, and, uh, but over time, the, the, the it's very easy to convince, you know, with a little bit of, with a little bit of experience, it, the argument is very easy to convince anybody because it is a l- less expensive way for the owner to get their project. When an owner comes to an architect, they don't want to roll of drawings. They want the building that they want. Sure. And this is a very powerful tool because um, we bid out to not the normal three subcontractors. We're bidding out to eight, 10 subcontractors in a, in, in a trade. And partly because um, we're more aligned, our incentive and our goals are more aligned with the clients, which is that we, we know that if we end up wasting an extra $5 a square foot on a superstructure, um, if we can dial that down, it's going to go into the interior finishes, into the sculptural staircase, into the facade system or the cladding system. And those are the things that, you know, get us excited. There's another, another thing, too, that we don't really talk about so much because it's not believable. But we build for probably 25 to 35 percent less than it would cost otherwise. Hmm. It doesn't. It doesn't seem possible, but there's so much waste in the system. If you actually, if you actually were able to understand the way things get done, and de- design, bid, build, you, you'll find that there's huge amounts of waste. So we just finished a house in California, and the, the comparables are fifteen hundred to two thousand dollars a square foot. We were eight hundred dollars a square. Foot. Wow! And it's the slicked out, the most slicked out building you've ever seen, and. So somehow that's got to be an advantage. We're not talking about um, minor things. We're talking about huge advantage. But these advantages, which are so big and so important, and it's really important, and we're really committed to this, and we do a lot of this, is that it's applicable to every project type. So this isn't something that's relegated to the, the single family high end, you know, insanely expensive $1,500 a square foot building. Um, we, we work for a lot, you know, our offices in, in Harlem and in Manhattan, we do work for a lot of not-for-profits in, in, um, in Harlem specifically because we're close, but in Queens and the Bronx charter schools, um, mm. and affordable housing, it, this same, that, that same savings is applicable, um, to, to those construction costs even more so. And from just in terms of the built environment and, and architecture, you're now accessing the people who can spend $1,500 a square foot, $800 a square foot, they're going to hire architects regardless. Sure. But the not-for-profit who, who, all, who thinks that architecture is something that is absolutely not available to them because it's, it's a luxury and it's an expense, when in fact, we can design a building to their budget that's appropriate for, for their budget but less expensive and really well conceived, which means it's going to work better for them. It expresses their mission. It's, you know, it's, it's going to be a building in the neighborhood that will, that will inspire um, the, the community. Those are things that we're able to bring to, to um, clients who often don't have access to it. It's all because of this model. And that's really powerful. So we're committed to affordable housing and we're committed to unaffordable housing. <laughs> <laughs> what is the largest project you guys have designed and built? So the biggest, the biggest ones we've done entirely in-house is um, we've just completed in the last couple of years, two 
$35 million um, condominium uh, between 40 and 45 unit buildings wow. um, in Manhattan. Wow. Um, high rise buildings, you know, 13 story buildings. So, you know, real New York City, you know, sure. all, all the mess of New York City construction. Um, there is a point, uh, there is a scale question. There's a point at which just our office of 40 can't, can't do everything and can't work in sectors all over. Um, but we are, we have figured out and are now starting to apply the next, the next mode kind of development of, of this model is to partner with a, with a CM where we can, and you have to have the light, the right CM, you have to have a like-minded CM and you have to have, you know, it has to really be a mutually respected group. It can't just be a, a pairing for, um, you know, to win an RFP or to, or mm -hmm. to uh, you know, for, for economic gain for one or the other. It really has to be an integrated team. And, and in that case, um, we did a building with a client who we had designed and built for three times uh, once he was on a board of a school in East Harlem, and then on his own development project, we built a stack, which is a modular building in uh, Inwood. And then he had a big project in Philadelphia. The first modular building in New York, actually. Wow. Um, he had a 190,000 square foot building in Philadelphia, where we were the architects. And then we worked with his construction company seamlessly bidding and buying. And then uh, we were one half of the, or one third of the trailer um, or let me say one half of the project management team throughout construction. Okay. Um, and we were co-owners with him on that. So, so how did the modular work? Did you work with a modular builder? We worked with a modular builder. You have to identify them early because their techniques are, are, are not um, all the same. And they do, they, the different factories do have different capacities and you really need to tailor to them. Um, and then it was built in, uh, we designed it all, we worked with them. We chose to go uh, lower tech, not high tech. This is right when um, uh, Atlantic, you know, where, where B2 building and the, and the kind of catastrophe that happened there. In Brooklyn. In yeah. Brooklyn, um, where they went to, the goal there was to go high tech and really solve the problem. And, and it's clear there is an ideal form of modular construction that they were aspiring to. It just, it's just, you, you can't build a space shuttle in one go, right? Yeah. It takes years and years of, and, and we were a smaller building. So we said, look, well, we got to know the modular builders. It's very, very simple. It's, it's offsite construction. It's the same construction techniques. It's what you're used to on site. It's just that it's all in a factory and that has huge advantages. Sure. So we worked very closely with them. Who was, was steel um, and concrete? Who yeah, was the was builder? Steel and concrete. It was, it was, I think now they're blocks. It was, um, uh, they were, I can't remember the you name. Want, of that if you want to know, <laughs> you want to know the real question. The real answer is that we were the builder. That's right. They could they could make all these things, but they couldn't put them together on the site, right? Because they weren't used to New York. Sure. They would. They had their their subs were these guys that that you know would would go hunting for half the season. And when they came to New York, they found that the hunting was a little bit different. So that um, a couple other things I, I'd love to get to. Um, I, I guess let's talk a little bit about technology. Um, you know, I learned uh, pencil on vellum and sitting there and making real blueprints and and doing that. I quickly evolved into you know the three D model guy and renderings. Uh, we at at our firm have really you know I don't I'm not a big fan of just pure static renderings. I actually don't think that they. I learned this early on with some clients after showing them a and then a year later standing in the built space and them saying, wow, I didn't think it was going to look like this and thinking, my God, how, how is that possible? This looks just like the rendering. <laughs> and so I, uh, somewhere along the line, I realized, well, they're not getting it uh, with, a, with a computerized rendering. And you spend so much time sort of worrying about the plant on the desk and the, the fabric on whatever it might be and getting it absolutely perfect that you miss the point of being in 3D. So we've developed rendering technology in our own VR technology where I would say 90% of what we're showing a client is actually whitewashed. You know, it's just putting a client in a space, being able to look around, manipulate, move, see things, get a feeling of space, and then we're developing it further sort of in a more traditional method, but always in 
in our case, Revit. What what are you guys working in? Are you working in a Revit system? Are you, you know, so it- we're a little all over the place. Okay. Um, we are we we use Revit and we find Revit actually extremely valuable because, and we alluded to this I think a little bit earlier, which is that you know it's a big investment to 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 build the model and maintain the model, and if you're you know if you're going through a lot of design iteration to continue to keep keep it. Uh, and especially if the design iteration doesn't all happen ideally in the early phases. Um, but for us, uh, Revit's great because, you know, it, it's at the end of CDs is not the end of that model. And as we said before, very often, if it does go on, it gets kind of taken over and restarted anyway. Mm-hmm. But so the investment in that as a design tool is so useful. Um, but for us on the back end, it's also extremely useful because we, we actually need the takeoffs and the quantities. We're the ones ordering the light fixtures. And so those parametric um, uh, capacities are, are also save us a lot of time later. And that investment in the model is then stretched over, let's say design is just as an arbitrary number a year and construction is two years. We get to, we get to amortize that over the full three-year experience. Sure. Um, also, we design a lot of models, paper models, yeah, okay. of all scales. We start with just little foam models, and, and we continue working with models all the way up. And I think that the three D, <clears throat> the three D um, capability is something. Me personally, everybody designs differently, but me personally, I I use the three D capability to design, not not to present and and we try not to present we try to say our office is open we don't care when you come up here but you'll see what we're struggling with when when you come and 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 we don't have presentations where the curtain parts and da da it's it's presentation time um and so we'd like to think we've been successful with that process if at the end of the project the client thinks that they designed the building that is exactly what you're describing with our process too because of opening the curtain let's say or opening the the back door and and showing you know kind of how it's made how the sausage is made we try to invite clients into the process and be part of it because there's no sense we've always said there's no sense in stopping a week before to create the most perfect presentation it's just a complete waste of the client's time of our time and you know, let's let's get them in. Let's and, let's and it's, talk and it's not accurate. It's and it's not, not accurate. accurate. It's fake, right? It's a, it's. I, I remember telling someone we had to put the Statue of Liberty in every single view, uh, in an apartment building that we were doing because the developer wanted to see the Statue of Liberty. So no matter where you look, northeast, <laughs> south, and west, there was the Statue of Liberty. It was absolutely ridiculous. There it is. <laughs> in the men's room. That's right. So so why are why are architects so smart? They're such an amazing people such an un, unrealized resource. Why are they so stupid? <laughs> I can't understand it. I and, don't know. And, you know, the way, the way I started, um, just so, so you should know how so, sort of um, invested in this as I, I am. I started the first three or four projects I did, I built with my own hands. I actually hammered nails and, you know, and there were a bunch of us doing this. And when it came time to, to, to that plumbing had to be roughed in, we went to the lumber yard and got a book on plumbing. And then when it was time for the electric to be roughed in, we got the electric book in the same series. And we found out that none of it is so hard. It's all really dumbass simple. It's just, there's a lot of it. But the one thing I think that's really important that I think as architects, we is a trap uh, and we fall into it in our office, um, which is that it's not that we have so much more knowledge then, I mean, we do because we're involved, we, we, you know, we're building, but it's not that we can have all the knowledge. We can't, and, and we never will be able to. Mm-hmm. What's so tremendously empowering, just like no architect would ever consider sitting down and design the mechanical system, where you have, you have a team, you have a partnership, you have your mechanical engineers, your structural engineers, your acousticians, all the various consultants. But we can get 90% there. But we, but we have, we have uh, what we have available to us is all the trades. So like we were working on a, a 250,000 square foot building and we were trying to come up with a cost-effective intelligent roofing system. And I 
you can call all the vendors, I can call all the users and get all the answers from, from, but that's really your resource. Or maybe there's a, maybe, maybe a cladding consultant or a roofing consultant, but we can, I can just get on the phone with a roofer who's done this a, a million different ways and get real feedback on what the differences are. Sure. Um, so, and, and it's having that information, having them be able to come into our office in design phase, be able to, to, and, and, this is a pool, a body of knowledge that's so valuable and so hard earned because that's all they do, right? All sure. they do is roofing and flashing. And if you have a tricky spot, like what should we do? What's the best way? What's the most cost? We want to do something unusual. We want to invent a, a facade a expression. How would we do it? I can get the cladding guy in here, which is so much better than talking to a vendor, which has already invested in a whole series of designs and engineering and, and UL testing and fire rating and all that stuff. And a sale. And 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 exactly, and a sale. And they love um, it. They love it. They exactly. People have said to me, "Well, how do you get how do you get uh, contractors to 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 come in and spend all this time with you?" I said, "That's what they want to do. So that's how they sell their work." Yeah. Number one and number two. They're they're so delighted that someone actually is taking their their knowledge into and respecting them because the the process doesn't respect them at all. Yeah. From day one, it 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 says the people working this job are a bunch of idiots, and well, we're we're even running the language. It. We talk about buying trades. They're being you know like 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 they're a light fixture. Yep, that's yeah. true. That's true. Tom, where uh, did you always want to be an architect? Growing up around it. Well, I, I, no, I didn't. Uh, and I had, you know, every time I'd pick up a Lego, my father would thwack me on the back of the head, but I'm, I'm a stubborn uh, hand, bastard. Hand, hand him a sc <laughs> scalpel. Um, and, uh, but, and I didn't, I actually started going into, I thought it was going to be pre-med. I started in science and, and then it just, uh, then I took a real college science class and I was like, oh, that's the end of that. And I ended up getting into set design, um, where I really, uh, ended up very much enjoying the, and it was, and design, set design was so great because it was set design and set construction. So I would, you draw something, conceive of something, and then you'd build it, you'd put it up in a weekend, it would run for a weekend, then you'd strip it down to a black box and you'd start over. Wow. So it was like the entire trajectory yep. in, in, you know, maybe three months of design and then a week of construction. And then you see it in the show for three days and then come down. And of course the feedback loop in, in architecture I worked on one project for five years from start to finish. Mm -hmm. oh, so to have that little, to have that quick turnaround was so valuable early in my career. Um, the downside of, of course, is that there's, there's, it's completely impermanent and it's all, it's all a farce, right? I designed a set that looked like Stonehenge, but it was made of stone and the back of it was all taped together with, you know, two by fours. And so, so there was no, there was no That's where our reality are, right? to it. And so, but you worked at Herzog and Demuron and what other firms, when you got your architecture degree, what firms did you work at? Well, so I, I had been working in, in my father's office through high school, building models, doing things like that. I also worked for a mill workshop and you, you were, you were a carpenter in Japan. I mean, yeah. I had been exposed to construction because okay. I enjoyed that. Um, it wasn't really designed at that point. Um, and then uh, together before architecture school, we designed uh, I did drawings on a house um, in the Catskills on on a piece of property that um, the family, our family owns. And then I went and physically built it. So that was the first time I got to to test this kind of feedback loop in in architecture and and got pretty excited. Good for you. Uh, and then I worked for Frank Israel's old firm out in L.A. Oh, I remember Frank. Um, for, I remember him, yep. Yep, for about three years uh, and then went to Europe and worked um, in Switzerland and and then ultimately they moved me to Minneapolis for that project. Okay. And so, and, and then Peter, where, where did you, where is the family from? Where did you all uh, live when, when Tom was growing up and do you have, is, are there other kids as well? Um, we live in New York Okay, and we, we, we had a, a piece of prop piece of property in, in the Catskills that we've had for 50 years before anybody knew where the Catskills were. <laughs> It's it's gotten so hot. It's 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 amazing. Yeah, it's like Rhinebeck. Rhinebeck. Um, we're, we're doing a project in Rhinebeck. Everybody wants to be there. Yeah, well, we're we're right across the river from Rhinebeck. Same yeah. thing. Yep. And um, my, my I have two sons, and my other one is uh, Mr. The, Hollywood, the successful one. 
<laughs> he went to Hollywood and Thomas became an architect. And Thomas at one point said, Will, how is it that you make more, you know, 10 times as much money as I do? And I said, well, that's really not true because very soon he's going to be making 20 times as much money as me. <laughs> Which has turned out to be the case. But it's funny because what he does is actually there must have been something in the water because he he's a filmmaker. He writes and directs. That's great. Um, movies. But it's essentially design build. Right. It's it's very similar. He he writes a script, which is would be our concept design. Sure. Um, and then directing it is kind of the all the, the trades, all the trades and, and, and putting it all together is the you know, the site and, and the costume and then the lights and the editing and, and then all the way through to the end product. So there's got to be something, there's something, there's something fundamental that happened uh, when yeah. we were little that, mm -hmm. that affected us as different as our, 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 our and we have a real, life. a real scholar mother who's um, a famous scholar who just retired actually. Nice. Congratulations. The age of the age of 80. Wow. <laughs> At the age of 80. Yeah. So are you both enjoying practicing together? And um, it, it seems like you're having a lot of fun. Yeah, I think that's, you know, that's, that's the, I, it's, it's, it's fantastic. That's great. If you like what you do every day, you can do anything, right? And it's because there's a lot of stuff in, in our profession, as you know, <laughs> that is not the, the most fun. But if you're fundamentally excited by what you're doing, um, it's all worth it. And I think we, and he doesn't have any we, trouble finding someone to cut the bullshit. We both are. <laughs> That's for yeah. sure. So Peter, and he's got some good stories and, and kind of wrapping <laughs> up, um, Peter, what do you want your legacy to be? Well, I, what I'm trying to do is, is to get architects to, um, to, to have more, a better life and to have more power and to, and to do what they ought to do. I, if, if I can make some impact on the profession, I'd say that that it doesn't quite equal making a great building, but I'd say it's a it's something that that I hold uh, important That's because good. it's so fucked up. It's just hard to believe. You didn't realize you needed a sensor for this, did you? That's uh, all good. I love <laughs> it. That's right. I'm sorry, didn't take that. Cut that out. It's not, it's not all good. No way. And then I could I could I could go for days talking about how incredibly stupid it is. Yeah, I, I, I love Everybody it. Everybody knows it. Everybody knows it. It's no secret. Yeah, listen, I've had even clients directly say, man, you guys are in a tough business. I don't know how you do it. You know, and I'm thinking, wow, you're the client, for God's sake. <laughs> yeah. um, and so I guess, you know, Tom, last thing, is there anything that, that we haven't covered that, that you'd like to? No, I mean, I would say that we, you know, we... We also are really committed, I think, because I've seen some of the things that you've written about and talked about, but we're, we're committed to trying to, to change the profession, to make it, to make, to increase its, its standing uh, and increase, you know, make it a better profession and, and improve our built environment, right? That's fundamentally what we do. So, um, you know, the, at, at least for this aspect of it, if people are interested in design build, it's, it's not as... It's not as impossible as it all sounds. It's not so hard to start. And it just takes kind of the will to try at a small scale. And, and so it's like, we, we can, as a profession, we can do this if we all do something to change it and not just you know, allow the current trajectory and trend to go undisrupted. Right. So it's like, a, it's like a bit of a call to arms. Yeah, well, if, you, if, you, if you want to know how to do it, and that's, that's the question that hasn't been asked, just do it, but start small yeah. and, and do it. And you'll find that, that if it's offered as a, as a, as a, an option to your clients, they'll grab it up. They'll gobble it up. The last thing they want to do is be a judge between a crazy architect with funny glasses and a guy <laughs> with a tool belt. I love it. Well, I'm inspired. Listen, I'm going to I'm going to give it a shot cuz this is right up my alley and you know, the more I do things in terms of building them myself, I always think, man, this really is not that hard. Why why am I why are we waiting around here to 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 get things done ourselves? So I I I I want to thank you both so much for taking the time for a, a great and fun conversation. 
um, you know, I, as I said, I'm inspired to, uh, to give it a shot and I hope others are, um, is there you any, come by, if you come to, if you come to New York and you want to come by the office, we'd be glad to, I definitely would like to meet around. in person for sure. So I'm in New York all the time. Our, our office is in fact, in New York, we're on 528th Avenue. So, uh, we'll, we'll talk offline and we'll get together for sure. I'd love to meet you both in person. Yeah. Cool. And this was fun. So thank you for, uh, yeah, thank us. you. Is there anything in particular you want to plug your website? Um, uh, you know, Social media, if you have it. <laughs> um, yeah, the website is is the is a great intro into it, and there's a lot of information on our website because we had it's hard to cover in a in a short sure. session about how you to, how it works and and but it's not we're, this is not a secret. We we spend a lot of time. I just uh, um, late last week I gave a talk to a bunch of young architects who are interested in design build. Um, we uh, we very much we very much want to increase this aspect this is an alternate delivery method to 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 make to make uh, the profession and the built environment better Great. if you go to the website there's the, the lower line of, of projects is a series of videos mostly about design build and about just very simple concepts that when extended are really powerful perfect well we'll put links to it and everything in uh in the in the show so thank you both Great. again. I really appreciate your time and I look forward to uh, to meeting in person. Sounds good. All right. Nice to talk to you. Thank you. Yeah.